Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability. We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, you've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code THEGOODDIRT in our online marketplace. So use the code THEGOODDIRT, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer online marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. I would invite everybody to engage in some sort of slow stitching, do something for slow living that is meditative, learn how to just take up embroidery, take up quilting, take up bread making, do something that slows your life down, because I think that you will become more contemplative. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Welcome, Good Dirt listeners, to another episode of The Good Dirt with Mary and Emma. And uh, we're just sitting here reminiscing about our retreat that took place last weekend, our virtual slow living retreat. And I'm thinking it was pretty ideal and I'm feeling really good about it. What about you, Mom? Yes, it was really, really wonderful. I'm just so grateful to all the people that came and participated and for our presenters and the people that helped us put it on. It was just really wonderful. I'm just still kind of glowing about it. Yeah, you know, it happens every year. We're definitely, we get nervous in the lead up. Oh, is it going to go okay? Are people going to like it? You know, all these feelings are so familiar. Now this is the fourth time having done it. Yeah, and you know how there's something about how the body, when something hurts, your body doesn't remember pain. I feel like that's like the opposite with their treat. Like I always <laughs> forget 
how actually awesome it is at the outset. <laughs> like I, the, the inner retreat, I get this feeling like, oh yeah, this is what it's felt like after every single retreat. It's like just awesome. But in the lead up, it's hard to remember <laughs> that it's going to be awesome. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, okay. We're now, we're on the other side of it now for the fourth time. And we're just as happy as ever about how it turned out. And all of you that were there, thank you so much. Anyway, we'll be posting and reminiscing about it a bit here. And those of you that are in the Almanac, you'll be seeing some things about it. And those of you that are in the Almanac that were actually at the retreat, there'll be lots and lots of stuff in there, some links and resources and photos and all kinds of stuff to follow up from our great classes and discussions and everything we did over the weekends. Yeah, we want to see all your fermented mustards. For sure. And your embroidery projects. Yes. <laughs> and your two-year spaces that you've been designing. So, Mom, I really love the way that our Saturday morning coffee chat turned out. With those events, we do leave a lot of space to plan them and see really like what's inspiring us closer to the weekend to see how the spirit strikes us. And I just really love the the program. I have to give you credit, Mom, that you came up with to celebrate the Kaliak. We talked a little bit about her last week yes. and a little bit about her on social in the past couple of weeks. But it really just turned into a beautiful discussion about this like feminine energy in particularly in winter and, and the duality of the winter and the spring. I don't know. It was really interesting. It was a true conversation in the Zoom room, which I feel like is kind of hard to do over Zoom, but people were really excited about it. And I think we all learned something from each other. Yes. And you mentioned our discussion about the Kaliak, which is the ancient figure of winter, the winter goddess or the winter hag, if you will. And she comes to us from ancient, ancient folklore from several sources. So we sort of fleshed that out and got our heads around what that means for us today and our own experience of winter of the season and not just this season of the year, but even the winter of our lives, so to speak, you know, all humans go through some dark times and sometimes when, you know, you're more uncomfortable, maybe struggling. So we just really got into a really meaningful discussion. And what is so interesting as this so often happens on the podcast, the discussion today in our episode our conversation with Cookie Washington. We also talk a lot about the feminine energy. We speak about the sacred feminine, which the Kaliak is very reminiscent and expressive of the sacred feminine in folklore. And Cookie's going to tell us about her experience of that in her artwork. So I love the way that the weekend themes dovetailed into this week's podcast. It's really cool. Yeah, in so many ways, not just in subject matter, but in, you know, the way that we found Cookie was through our work with Acres of Ancestry and Tracy McCurdy, who runs that project. And Acres of Ancestry is and has been for the past two years our partners for our Slow Living Retreat. We take 10% of all proceeds from that event and we donate it to Acres of Ancestry Initiative Black Agrarian Fund, which if you have not heard of it, is a multidisciplinary, cooperative, nonprofit ecosystem rooted in Black ecocultural traditions and textile arts to regenerate custodial land ownership, ecological stewardship, and food and fiber economies in the South. So we really love this organization and everything that they're doing. And all of the women involved that we've met <laughs> that are involved with it are amazing people. And 
Tracy wanted us to specifically focus on the Return of the Bees Multimedia Project, which is a project within this Acres of Ancestry initiative for this weekend specifically. So we did chat a little bit about the Return of the Bees project at the retreat. And it's just so, as you said, it's so funny that this is the episode that's just like happening this week. Of course it is. So yeah. Do you want to tell them a bit about the project, Mom? Yes. The Return of the Bees is a multimedia project that traverses the history, evolution, and futurism of Southern Black agrarian material culture and includes fiber arts and heritage quilt making. Cookie herself is a fourth generation needle worker and has been creating with textiles for more than five decades. Her current passion is fiber art muralism that celebrates the divine feminine and the contributions of her African ancestral heritage. For 16 years, she's been the guest curator of the African American Fiber Arts Exhibit that is part of the North Charleston Cultural Arts Festival. Cookie teaches quilt-as-you-go classes to women in underserved communities. She gives educational lectures for students in public schools, and she donates quilts to charities serving the homeless. One of her proudest accomplishments to date is having been selected as one of the 44 master art quilters to create a quilt to honor President Barack Obama's inauguration in 2009. This conversation with Cookie was especially meaningful to me, especially in regards to my own exploration and writing on the topic of the sacred feminine. And as you will hear, Cookie shares with us some very personal moments and experiences in her journey with her artwork and her quilting and her experience of the divine feminine in her artwork. Yes, it was really a moving conversation. It was definitely one of the more memorable ones for me. We really appreciate Dear listeners, you giving us the space and giving Cookie the space to sort of process everything that we talk about here. And yeah, we just want to let you know there's some sensitive stuff discussed in this conversation, but it's all so good and so important. And we hope that you enjoy it. Thank you so much. And here's Cookie. My name is Cookie Washington. I live in Goose Creek, South Carolina, which is a little suburb of Charleston, South Carolina. I am 62 years old. I am a quilter and a dressmaker and a rabble rouser and a mom and a grandma, which is the best thing that I am. And I have been making textiles since I was like four years old. I love fabric. I just love everything about it. And it's very soothing to my soul. I guess that's who I am. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the projects that you've done? I mean, maybe we'll get here too, but most recently in our last conversation, you were telling me about a show you had recently put up. Well, I just closed a duo show with a sister from Ghana that I met through my friend, Tracy Lloyd McCurdy, and she showed me her quilts and they are different than anything I've ever seen. And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm going to collapse this solo show into a duo show because I thought the world needed to see this. And every year for the past 16 years in May, I curate a show for the city of North Charleston, which is a separate city from Charleston. And every year I pick a theme and then African-American quilters from all over the country submit. This was a kind of a small year, but we had like 40 quilters and about 55 quilts or dolls. And it was very successful. It was called Sankofa. 
And Sankofa is a Dinkra symbol that means go back and get it or honor your ancestors, learn from them while moving forward in a positive light. Very cool. So a lot of the work that you're doing with the quilting and the storytelling does have to do with this idea of ancestry and connecting to our ancestors and the land. Is that correct? And the tradition? Yeah. My Sankofa quilt actually was called My Ancestors' Acres Stolen, Seeking Return. At one time, my grandparents had a lot of land, but through hook or by crook or unfair, I don't want to say dishonest, unfair practices by the United States government, they lost their land and, you know, was cheated out of their land until when my grandfather died, he only had like three acres of land left. I loved my grandparents. It kind of broke my heart to watch that happen. And I remember from a little girl, my grandfather saying, there's a reason why it's called real estate. Mm-hmm. When I got married the first time, I proudly showed my granddaddy my engagement ring. And he said, baby, what you really should have gotten was engagement real estate. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. You said a moment ago that you love the symbolism and I know you use a lot of it in your artwork, particularly bringing up images of the sacred feminine. And I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit. What does that mean? What does it mean to you? And what are you bringing forth when you integrate that into your artwork? Thank you so much. That's a great question. Until I started quilting, I wasn't really knowledgeable about the divine feminine. And I was raised a Baptist. I am such a Baptist girl. And so as a Baptist, we're like all about Jesus. And we never talked about the Holy Mother, the Blessed Virgin. You know, 15 minutes at Christmas, you talk about Mary gave birth to Jesus. And then when I started quilting, I immediately knew that I wanted to do art quilting and that I wanted to do something that was meaningful, that would either teach me or teach somebody else something and that would raise the dialogue, particularly African-American women feel good about themselves. And so I was sitting one day with my notebook. I'm I'm a great believer in taking time and listening to whatever can come to you. And so I'm sitting there with a notebook and something came to me that said, investigate the Black Madonna. Oh my God. And I've never heard of the Black Madonna. And so I get on the computer and it's like, what is the Black Madonna? It's like, oh my goodness. And I suddenly find all this information Information, the very first images of the Holy Family were all black. Mm, yes. But Our Lady of long name in Poland, Our Lady of Poland, was John Paul II's favorite Madonna, I guess, because it was created in Poland. And she's beautifully black. The Holy Child is black. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And from learning about her, I learned other things, but I was like, okay, God, I now have all this information. What am I supposed to do with it? And I literally heard verbally God say, make eight black Madonnas. Oh my gosh. And so I was like, oh, well, I'll make something else right now. Of course, it failed miserably. And I went back to my notes and it said Black Madonnas. I was like, okay, this is directly a message. So I'm going to pay attention because you're supposed to when you get a message that strongly. So I made the first Black Madonna. She was wild and she had great hair. It made the three-dimensional hair, you know, crocheting some yarn. So she had beautiful dreadlocks blowing in the wind. And then she was holding the baby Jesus at her breast. So that was the first one. And I felt really good about it. And I felt like, okay, I guess I'm going to do this. And that quilt I entered in a guild show for our local quilt guild, which is predominantly Euro-American. 
I didn't realize that there was even racism amongst quilters. I turned the quilt in like on a Wednesday. The show opened on a Saturday morning. So I go to see my quilt and I'm like, oh, excited. There was a competition in several different categories and I couldn't find my quilt. And one of the women there who had never been terribly friendly with me said, somebody messed with your quilt. And I said, where is it? And she said, oh, it's in the, pointed me in the direction. It was hanging in front of the garbage room. <gasps> And even though it was hanging in front of the garbage room, I still won a third place ribbon. Oh my goodness. Yeah, which was just amazing. And what it was, was they hired an outside jurist to come in. This person, thankfully, just judged it on the work and the design and whatever. And it was just the guild members who objected to the Black Madonna. And in the quilt, I made her a dress out of a beautiful sheer silk that I had. But I exposed the right breast because that's where she's holding the baby Jesus in her arms. You unfasten your dress or, you know, the side of your dress and your breast is exposed. And that's how you feed your baby because it's hard to feed him through a bra or something. And someone had taken a giant diaper pin and and pinned the silk You're back kidding. up on the shoulder of the Madonna. Oh my goodness. Thus damaging this silk <gasps> that I was really expensive. No. Beautiful handmade silk. Oh my God. And I was so livid. I thought I need to sue these people. But God was on my side or the goddess, the Blessed Virgin was on my side. The very next weekend, there was a seminar called Mosaics of Mary. And it was about all the Marys in the Bible with an emphasis on Mother Mary. They asked me if they could borrow the quilt just to hang it at the seminar. And I said, oh, of course, you know, I'd be glad, you know, and had to like make sure it didn't smell like garbage anymore. Mm. That seminar started on a Thursday and was over on Sunday because I loaned them my quilt. I was able to go to the whole seminar. It was really wonderful. I learned a lot more about the Black Madonna, a very famous spiritual person. Reverend Andrew Harvey was there and talked all about the Black Madonna and how important she was. It was just a wonderful thing. At the very last part of the afternoon, one of the facilitators came and said, someone's looking for you. And I didn't know who this person was. And this woman came up to me and she said, are you Cookie Washington? She said, I have to have that quilt. And I said, okay. She said, is it for sale? And I said, well, yeah, I guess if it's going to go to a good home. She said, I have a good home. I have to have this. And I said, okay. And she said, how much is it? And I was going to say this one price in the hundreds of dollars. And I started to say a number and she said, I won't pay more than blank thousand dollars for it. And I said, sold with my first four figure sale. Wow. And it was only like the fourth or fifth quilt that I had ever made. <gasps> wow. And it did. It went to a wonderful home in the North Carolina mountains. And the woman was just so thrilled. And so was I. So it kind of vindicated what had happened before. I remember just sitting and working on it, doing the beading, crocheting the hair, sewing the little individual dreadlocks on the baby Jesus. I pray and meditate a lot when I'm quilting. It becomes a very slow, contemplative process. I think it's very good for everybody's mental health. I know very few stressed out quilters. Oh, there's so much... I want to respond to in this. This is so exciting to me. I too have had an experience in my discovery of the sacred feminine years ago, I would say even 20 years ago, just discovering this concept and it kind of opening up a whole new way of being as a woman. I wrote a little prayer book that I published in uh, 2004 called Prayers and Seven Contemplations of the Sacred Mother. Oh, beautiful. Used the, the prayers of the rosary and adapted it to more of a 
prayers to the, the sacred feminine. It was sort of a reimagining of Mary, the Virgin Mary. But is it a reimagining or is it a remembering? Yes, that's a huge question. And I think for us in our present culture, we are using our imagination to remember what once was that has been long buried. So, but we have to use our imaginations to get there. Do you see what I'm saying? Because it's not in our experience. So it's like when you were open to that, those, would you call it a vision that came to you where you had to do your quilts? Was that a vision or a dream? It was a vision and absolutely auditory, just as you can hear my voice and I can hear those, you know, it was like God said, and I I said, what? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I also said, like, I am a Baptist girl. Have you done all eight at this point? I have not done all eight. Okay. It's coming slow, but a Madonna number two was one that I did for my mother. And it was kind of an abstract. And I didn't realize when I made it, it looked very Matisse-like. And I guess I had seen a Matisse piece, but my mom loved it. So she kept it. And then I did a third one that was a small piece that I did around Easter. And it was a more modern mother and child. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth piece I did was probably the most meaningful. There is a song called Angelitos Negros. It's a Spanish song and it talks about why are there no black angels in art? Mm-hmm. And then the refrain is that if there are no black angels in art, then it is up to you to create them. And so I had that image of Our Lady of Poland. And so I put her in the center of the quilt and then surrounded her by black angels of all different shades of blackness. And again, the Holy Mother and the Holy Baby were black. And that quilt took on really amazingly powerful significance. In 2013, I felt like it was super important to have an art show to celebrate, to honor, to remember the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And I could not find a venue that would allow me to have a show for, you know, the six weeks or whatever that I had wanted. My friend, Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who I knew through my liberal activism work, uh, was also the pastor of Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. And I just asked him, like, hey, in your fellowship hall, do you suppose we could have this exhibit? And he was like, oh, yes, we believe believe that our spiritual walk also should include serving your spirit, your body, your mind, whatever. So he allowed us to have an art show there. And I was working on that Black Madonna, Mama, there are no, yes, there are Black angels. And I showed it to him. He loved it. He was at the time getting his PhD in divinity from Allen University. And so we talked about that. And he being an AME, like me being a Baptist, we did not have have images of Mary in our culture. You know, we're very much male-centered religion, Jesus, the prophets, the disciples, whatever. And he loved it. And so we talked a lot and the show ended, it was very successful and, and everybody was really happy. And he said, you know, we'll invite you back again. In April of 2015, he invited us back again. As a matter of fact, requested we do an art show at Mother Emanuel Church. The city was kind of, the community was kind of in up uproar, a police officer had shot a gentleman in cold blood in literally for no reason. And thankfully, he was immediately fired and arrested and thankfully, surprisingly convicted. But the city was really on edge. And so Reverend Pinckney said, please come and just, I don't care, just make an 
Robert show, just put something beautiful in the fellowship hall. We'll share it with the community. And I said, okay. And I had finished the Black Madonna by then. And he was just so enamored of it. And I said, Clem, I'd like to give this to you. But I know that as soon as this is over, it's got to go somewhere else, but it'll be back on this date. And he said, great. And so we're both very busy. And we got on our calendars and decided that June the 19th, we could get together. I said, I'm going to bring you the quilt. I'll bring you the rod. He wanted to hang it in his office at the church. So we were going to meet at Saffron. And he was like, I'm so excited. And in September, I'm going to have a whole service about the divine feminine. I'm learning, you know, so much in school, et cetera, et cetera. Remember me, he never made our luncheon. Mm. Because that Wednesday, he was murdered, (gasps) along with eight other people, by a white supremacist terrorist. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my Lord. Wow. I'm sorry. Oh, don't apologize. It was, excuse me, still is incredibly devastating. Mm. I knew so many of the murdered people. And I know Reverend Magney, who was also a state senator for like 15 or 16 years and he was an amazing young man full of hope and promise and walked with such integrity one of the things that I loved about him was that he was very respectful and loving of women my daughter suffered a massive heart attack and a hypoxic brain injury as a result of a botched surgery. Mm. I was never a member of Clem's Church of Mother Emanuel AME, but through the grapevine, this is what happens when you live in a big city, small town, he knew. And one Sunday after church, he just showed up. She was in the hospital for 31 days. And he just showed up and said, Sister Cookie, I've come to pray with you. And Ariane, this man is a senator and a minister and he's getting his PhD and he's also a father and a wonderful husband and he found time several times to just stop by the hospital and bear witness and pray with us he was just that kind of man and to see his life cut down so horribly it was unbearable Mm -hmm. the next morning about two o'clock in the morning is we didn't know and initially who was dead and who wasn't dead about 2 30 in the morning i found out that yeah he and nine other people had been killed and they left three survivors Mm -hmm. who will be traumatized for the rest of their life because you know they had to lay there in the blood of their family members and friends for some time but we at 5 30 a friend of mine called me she was visiting in England and she said cookie I'm hearing something really crazy on the BBC and they keep saying Charleston South Carolina but I keep thinking they mean Charleston West Virginia and I said what are you hearing and she said that there was a church shooting and I said no sadly it's true it is uh, Charleston South Carolina and she said what church and I had to tell her it was Mother Emanuel and she had been one of the artists that showed in the fellowship hall oh oh my goodness and she said what do we do and I said we're artists we make art we go into our studios and we make art and we will have a tribute show Mm -hmm. to honor Reverend Pinkney and the congregation that gave us a home for our art we will gift that back to them. And through our art, we will try to help heal the city. It took a year to find the right space and the right place, but we did a beautiful tribute show and I was able to publish a book of the art pieces. Is that book available? I need to put it on my website. Yes. It was called Holy City, the Art of Love, Unity and Resurrection. 
Wow. We opened on May the 28th. There was going to be a whole month of remembrances of what happened. And I was able to invite the family members of the fallen and the survivors for a private showing beforehand. And it was so beautiful and so moving and probably one of the very best things I've ever done in my life. Wow. Yeah. And some of the artists had direct connection to members of Mother Emanuel. One of the artists, her great-grandparents, grandparents, and parents had all been married in Mother Emanuel Church. It was so healing for her to be able to participate in the show. One of the people who sent an art piece, she had been I guess, second cousins with one of the people that were murdered, but she had also been first cousins on the other side of one of the four girls that were killed in the Birmingham bombing in the 60s. Wow. And so she was just devastated. 50 years later, we're still experiencing the same Mm -hmm. kind of trauma as African-Americans in this country. Mm-hmm. It was very challenging, but I'm glad we did it. And I feel like Reverend Pinckney is looking down from heaven and being well pleased that, mm-hmm. that we did it. But I will miss him, obviously, for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. You know, so many people talk about the family members that immediately were able to forgive the shooter, the terrorist, and I'm still not there yet. Yeah. I think um, forgiveness is a process, and I'm not through that process. But I made a uh, tribute quilt that has Mary embracing Jesus coming off the cross and Mother Emmanuel was in the foreground of the picture. I'm sorry, that was a really sad story. Oh, do not apologize. Thank you so much. I feel so honored to be able to hold that. Yeah, that's it's such a just a powerful coming together of so many things there. I'm so struck by the fact that Reverend Pinckney was... So open and welcoming and even embracing of the whole concept of the sacred feminine, because in our culture, that's a very threatening idea to a lot of people, particularly people of the church. It is for men in the church. Mm -hmm. Yes. And here he was being like just at the truly cutting edge of this kind of a spiritual revolution here. And he was taken away so tragically and it's just wow it's really staggering and it was very staggering but speaking about the divine feminine i'm very blessed i have friends from all walks of life and all religions and non-religions yeah i have a friend who is a rabbi Mm-hmm. He is a conservative rabbi, but he talked to me about the Kabbalah and talked to me about the story of Sophia, who is the black goddess of yes. wisdom and referred to as the consort of Yahweh. And he said that she, the smartest woman, taught King Solomon, the smartest man who ever lived, allegedly, all of his wisdom. And I love that story. And so I've made a Sophia quilt as well. I've made it to honor the Sophias in my life. And I think that it's important, you know, and if you look at the word Sophia in the Latin, all of the philosophies, philosophy, Mm, all those words come out of the Sophia wisdom tradition. And so I think As we learn and study, as I said, I think we are remembering. And I think when we reintroduce the divine feminine and it is more accepted, I think that we will be a more peaceful place. I think we need to have more balance. You know, we've been so in the patriarchy for a couple of thousand years and that has not gone as well as 
anyway, I hope. And so maybe as we re-embrace the divine feminine, we can get to a more peaceful, nurturing place. I can't imagine that any mother ever gave birth and said, oh, I hope you grow up to be a little terrorist or I hope you grow up to be killed in a war or something. We we want to nurture and love our children. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think if we ran the world, Yes. <laughs> or could co-run the world in a more equal way, things might be better. Oh, it's so very much about balancing things out and not trying to power one worldview empowering over another. It's about balance. I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Sue Monk Kidd, the novelist. Yeah. Yes. She wrote The Secret Life of Bees, which we started out this, yeah. this conversation about bees and how it ties in with the sacred feminine. She wove that into a wonderful novel, which so many people are familiar with. Sue Monk Kid used to live in Charleston and I was actually at the book launch for this. Oh my yes. goodness. Oh yeah, she, yes. Really super nice lady. Yes. Very, very knowledgeable, very spiritual. Yes, and before she wrote the novel, she would lead tours in Europe for people to go and actually see these Black Madonnas and teach people, introduce them to the concept of what it is. It's a very nuanced topic. It's just hard to like, you can't explain it quickly. It has so much to do with not only history, even in certainly pre-Christian history, but also human psychology. You know, it has to do with the shadow and, and things that have been buried, literally buried and psychologically buried. And it's just an amazing topic. And art is a way to like penetrate the human psyche. And certainly in your quilt making, we, you have done this. You have delved into this topic and this concept, which is huge for our culture and humanity and brought it forward. And as we have all experienced, you know, the divine feminine energy can speak to us in different ways. And it's very speaking very loudly now in the context of the climate crisis. Mother Earth is hurting. And oh, yes. we, I think we as women are going to have to take the lead in healing it. I think about that young girl, Greta Thornburg yes. and other climate activists and other kinds of activists. Sometimes it's hard to think about wanting to heal the earth if your basic needs aren't met. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, so if I'm not in a safe place, if my children aren't in a safe place, I can't really be concerned about the bees or the mm-hmm. trees or whatever. I need to get my needs met. So I think it's a big circle of things that we need to look at. You know, I mm-hmm. think that as we're talking about making the earth safe and cleaning up the water and cleaning, you know, we also have to make sure that we are all in a place where we can join that, mm-hmm. yes. you know, that activism. So it is equally as important to make sure that the bees are not dying, but it's even more important to make sure that our children are not dying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm 60, I'm not going to be here in 40 years. So what can I do to make sure that my children and my granddaughters are in a place where they are safe and they have what they need so that they can look beyond their immediate needs to the bigger needs of the planet? Yeah. And that is that that is that mother energy, mm-hmm. that divine feminine energy. You know, our culture is so based on the father figure, father energy. And as we've been saying, it is now is the opportunity long overdue to bring that more of that mother energy forth. And, you know, for eons, nature has been um, referred to in the feminine, mother nature. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. And I think that comes deep in our human psyche too, that life-giving, life-sustaining, nurturing energy is not exclusive to females, but it is a feminine energy of the universe. We've reached a point here where as humans, we all need to call that forth. And that means taking care of everyone, taking care of the bees and the babies and all living things and doing what's necessary, really a gigantic paradigm shift, Mm -hmm. worldview, all of these things. There's just so many things coming together here. Very exciting. Cookie, can you talk to us a little bit about either the mermaids, your work with mermaids or Califia, the goddess? Yeah. Oh, I will talk about both of them. Okay. Um, Yay. <laughs> thank you for asking. I will talk about Califia first because that's my older love. Okay. I grew up part of the time in New Mexico, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I was, I guess, a little precocious. Anyway, I was able to take some courses at the university, even when I was very, very young. An anthropology professor one day handed me this book. He said, you might be interested in this book. And he did it in a very offhanded way. But I thought, oh, this is a very smart man and noticed little old unimportant me. And so I thought for sure I was going to read the book. And I'm a voracious reader. And it was the story of Khalifa, which absolutely blew my mind. Khalifa is the Black Amazon goddess that the state of California is named after. The first time that this story was written down, which doesn't mean it sprung up at that time, but the first time it was written down that I can research was in 1510 in Spain and in Brazil at the same time. So I have two interpretations. One of them was in Spanish and one of them was in Portuguese. But it was such a well-known story to apparently all educated Spaniards that when Cortez 30 years later came looking for the city of gold, they thought it was Baja, California, which is where they thought that California was an island. And they thought that Khalifa, a black Amazon goddess, ruled the land and that everything in her kingdom was of gold. They lived with no men, but they had griffins, which are the eagle-headed lions. Oh, cool. Yeah. And if a man deigned to try to, you know, get on their island, the griffins would get them and fly them up into the air and then dash them to the rock and rip them to shreds and eat them. Oh, dear. (laughs) Oh, I love that. (laughs) Yeah. But it said in the book that Cliffa was black as night and was the most beautiful, more beautiful than the blonde haired one or the red headed one or whatever. But that is part of hiding the history Mm -hmm. of the Africa, African Americans, even Hispanic history. I had that book when I was 15 and I've moved around a lot since then. I mean, said my dad was in service and I went to college and got married twice and whatever. And I lost the book. And when I got my first computer in 1996, there wasn't even Google yet. There was Yahoo and Mm -hmm. Ask Jeeves. And I think my first server was CompuServe that then eventually turned into AOL. But you could type in things and sometimes you'd get a hit, sometimes not. (laughs) Yeah. Back then, the internet was wild. I'll give you an example. I had a dog that I just loved and she had a tick, which just freaked me out. And I thought, I can handle this tick. So I typed in something about pets to love or something like that, thinking that I'm going to get like a veterinarian website Mm -hmm. that's going to show me how to remove a tick. That was not what showed up. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So... (laughs) 
I decided to take the dog to the vet, but it was a female vet and she helped me learn how to take ticks off my dog. But getting back to Califa, so I typed that name into the search engine and I'm like, I'm excited. I'm going to find this information. And the only hit that I got on the name Califa, C-A-L-I-F-I-A, was a trans porn star. Oh um, my gosh. Who was using a white trans porn star <gasps> who was using the name, which was really aggravating to yeah. me. <laughs> so a couple, three years later, when Yahoo got better, <laughs> I was able to find like actual information. Yeah. But there are only two very well-known images of Khalifa. One of them is in the Mark Hopkins Hotel on the top of Knob Hill in California, in San Francisco. Mm. There is a seven foot tall mural in the room of the Dons and it's the history of California. And the very first panel of that incredibly beautiful painting is Khalifa greeting the Spanish explorers. Oh, wow. It's a beautiful picture because they are kneeling before her. She's standing there with two of her warrior women and she's holding a griffin, you know, Uh like on a leash. The Spanish explorers are kneeling on the ground in front of her, which is just an amazing picture. And then there is a picture called the Naming of California or something that is in the state house in Sacramento, but it's in a place where you would have to go looking for it. But Disney in 2001, Disneyland, which is the one in Anaheim, California, created a ride experience is what they called it, called the California Adventure. Mm-hmm. And there was a movie that was made and Khalifa narrates the history of California. Oh, cool. Wow. <laughs> and Amazing. I wrote it and they have not released the film, but there is a bootleg copy of the film on YouTube. Oh, cool. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I have to type in Khalifa plus Whoopi Goldberg plus California Adventure and you can see it's a very bad, yeah. very grainy because somebody was not supposed to record it, but it's yeah. there and <laughs> yeah. it's it's fascinating. I've written Disney eight different times and asked them if I could have a copy of the mm. film, if I could see the stills. Once they decide they're not going to show something, they're just, you will never see it. Right. So, yeah. But anyway, so Khalifa is super important. I love your depiction of her. We're looking yeah. at that quote And now don't too. you think it's really no mystery that she's been so... Buried. Yeah, Absolutely. buried, suppressed. And because now patriarchal system came in there and settled California. So, mm-hmm. of course, Khalifa has been gone underground, literally. Oh, absolutely. And there is now an almond milk oh. <laughs> called Khalifa oh. almond milk. There's no depiction of Queen Khalifa. Interesting. On the almond milk, Why? which is annoying. Yeah, that is annoying. Anyways, oh, well. I love her. Love Khalifa. You were going to tell us about yeah, another the mermaids. One. Oh, the black mermaids came <gasps> out of my research of the Black Madonna. Oh my gosh. There are virgin birth stories in every culture, religion, whatever. Yes. And in the Yoruba faith tradition, which is West Africa, you know, everything along the coast, they worship water gods and water spirits. And I guess you're looking at Yemiya gives birth to all mankind. That is an amazing story. Yemiya is one of the, I guess, more prominent gods or goddesses in the Yoruba faith. And she was apparently in kind of a disagreement with one of the gods spirits. He made her mad and she swum around and started a water spout and a tornado and was so angry. She flung her body onto the earth. She was pregnant and 
and her womb exploded, giving birth to all humankind of every race came forth from her body. It's a wonderful story. There are so many goddesses and Orishas that are depicted as Black mermaids. I love that story. One of the reasons I think it's vitally important for us to know is Black women are not coming up from slavery. We are coming down from being worshipped as deities. Mm -hmm. And we need to remember, we need to absolutely remember and re-inculcate that in our spirit. Because if you just went to graduated from high school in America, if you went to school back east, like I did part of the time, you know, the first black woman that showed up in my history books was Phyllis Wheatley, who was Mm -hmm. a poetess and a slave. Mm -hmm. And then 75, 100 years later, you learn about Harriet Tubman, who was the conductor on the Underground Railroad, Mm -hmm. but also a slave. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you touched on Sojourner Truth, but not a lot because she was a rabble rouser but also a slave. Mm -hmm. And that's the context Mm -hmm. that you get. And then now we elevate performers. I love performers. Yay, Beyonce. Yay, Mary J. Blige. I love Mm -hmm. these people, but Beyonce has a voice and I have a voice and only one of us is ever going to make money singing and dancing. And so let's talk about other Black women and other accomplishments. Mm I'm currently making a quilt, and I'm very excited about this, about a woman or someone who was assigned female at birth. I want to say that because I'm still not 100% sure how to language this correctly, but there was a human born a slave. Her name was, at the time, Cathay Williams. She was born into slavery in Missouri. Right at the start of the Civil War, the Union Army came through and took her away from the plantation that she was serving on. And they had the right, apparently, to take enslaved people and press them into service for the Union Army. Hmm. And they called them contrabands. Amazing story. She served with the Union Army unpaid for about five years for the whole of the Civil War. And she became quite apparently such a good cook that she ended up cooking for General Custer, both George and his brother. And when the war was over, she ended up dressing as a man and joined the Union Army. She was the first and only female Buffalo soldier. Wow. Which is amazing because she disguised herself as a man. And apparently they did not give her a very thorough physical, but she was quite a tall (laughs) woman on her enlistment papers. It says man, five, nine, hail, hardy, whatever. And so he served for almost two years walking from Missouri, where he enlisted, all the way to New Mexico and Colorado, and later in life, ended up losing his toes. And for many years, people thought, oh, well, it was because he was a diabetic. She was a diabetic, unhealthy, whatever. But new research has shown that Buffalo soldiers, who also became the first park rangers, which is very interesting. Oh, um, I didn't know that. They were protecting people who were going through the, you know, during the Indian Wars, that was what they were called. And they were not allowed to start fires to cook or to keep warm in the winters because the smoke would have let the native people know where they were. And they, of course, would have come and killed them. And then there would have been no protection. 
So she did that dressed as a man for two years and then got very sick with smallpox. And finally, it was revealed that she had female genitalia and was honorably discharged from the army. We have her her discharge as well as her enlistment papers. Wow. And then for a time, she moved to Colorado, again, disguising or dressing. I don't know I want to say disguising, but presenting Mm -hmm. as a man and worked as a man and then at some point converted back to dressing as a female, married very briefly a man and he stole from her. And she bravely, a free woman in Colorado had her husband arrested because he stole her team of horses and her money. This is just a fascinating story. Wow. But then at the end of her life, she became very sick and apparently mentally sick and ended up dying and a sane asylum that's what they were called then mm. in 1911 but what an amazing story in history yeah i'm still researching this person i wrote the person who's been doing the majority of research and she said someone donated to a library in pueblo colorado the actual medical journals from this sane asylum oh wow and she was documented as William Kathy. And then in parentheses, it said Catherine Williams. So wow. they kind of knew. And there was a couple of newspaper articles that were written about her. And they knew that she was, I'm guessing the best way to describe this person would be maybe gender fluid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because apparently everybody knew that when she first came to Colorado, she presented as William Kathy. And then in the last article that was written about her, she was described as the nigger Kate who lived mm. in such and such and even listed her address. So this is really important to know that, first of all, my granddaddy used to always say to me, honey, there is nothing new under the sun. Yeah. And this, is <laughs> yeah. absolute, this is absolute proof that, yeah, there is yeah. nothing new under the sun. And you're working on this quilt now about her, for her. I'm working on this quilt okay. now. Wow. It will be ready for the show that I am having with the Acres of Ancestry Return of the Bees in January in Charleston, South Carolina. Yes. Oh, wow. So I'm very excited about this. Oh, I just want to throw this in here. It's interesting to know that in those times back then, whenever then was for women, they didn't know what to do with. They just put them in an insane asylum. Yeah. That's what you did with women that decide what was deemed as reason. So, well, thank you for making her quilt. I cannot wait. I'm so excited excited to learn about. I'm just thrilled. Like I said, I really want to be very respectful of making sure that I get the pronouns right. Right, right. And so as I'm moving through creating blocks about his or her story, Mm -hmm. I'm changing, you know, when he lived in Colorado, in Trinidad, Colorado, when she moved to Pueblo, Colorado, then Mm -hmm. she did this. So I'm trying, trying very hard to be careful, but I'm so excited because we tend to think we're very narrow-minded and we don't know history. And we think, (laughs) oh, this whole trans thing just happened a couple of years ago. It's trendy. It's like... (laughs) Yeah, obviously not. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, we'll need to get more information from you when this episode comes out about that show in January. This might be airing a little bit closer to that time. So if anyone's listening and is interested in any of this and seeing any more. I will have it on my website. Perfect. We right now don't even have a good working title. Okay. (laughs) Right now it's (laughs) presenting the permanent collection of the 
Acres of Ancestry, Return of the Bees. And it will be in Charleston, South Carolina. It will be at the City Gallery at Waterfront Park, which is the most beautiful place. And it will open January 17th and run through Black History Month, so the end of February 2021-22. Oh, please come. It'll yes. be great. Yes, we'll we will. Bees. There'll be people who will be teaching classes. And um, we can go Charleston to that pizza is place. A food town. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Charleston is a great food town. Yeah. So now, Cookie, we have a couple more questions for you before we wrap sure. up. Sure. So... Cookie, what does the good dirt mean to you? And this can be literally or metaphorically or any way you want to answer it. Good dirt means to me loving the earth. We stand on good dirt. Sometimes it's not as good as it should be. And it is our job to make it good dirt. That's the first thing that comes to mind. But then second is, you know, honoring the earth. It is the good earth, the good dirt. Even if we don't farm, I think it's important that we all try to grow something, to have that respect. The earth feeds us, you know, not only I'm in love with kale, all kinds of kale. So I get my kale from the good dirt, but it also grows the grass and the wheat that feeds the cows. And I'm not a vegetarian, so I will eat cows. Cookie, is there anything else for today that you would like to leave our audience with or anything that you want folks to understand about the work that you're doing? I would invite everybody to engage in some sort of slow stitching, do something for slow living that is meditative, learn how to just take up embroidery, take up quilting, take up bread making, do something that slows your life down because I think that you will become more contemplative. And when we are in contemplation, that is when we can, as I say, remember who we are in a spiritual transformative sense. That that would be what I would love for people to be, to do. Oh, yes. And go find some bees and talk to them. They're magical. I honestly think we need to apologize to the bees. Yes. Because they have been trying to tell us for many years now, Y'all are in trouble and you're not paying attention to that. The bee is a very powerful symbol in the motherland. In the Closa culture, the Mandiba clan, a visitation by the swarm of bees is presumed to be a message from the ancestors who would like the family to do something for them, or they are returning to do something for the family. In the petty culture, a swarm of bees in your yard is always taken as a symbol of the ancestors bringing good luck to the family. You then thank the ancestors accordingly, acknowledge their presence, and let them know that you anticipate the good wishes or blessing. I think we need to, as we call our group, return to the bees, get into the hive mind. Bees help each other and they sustain us. I think that's very important. Oh, Cookie, thank you so much for that. And thank you for coming and being with us today in this very, very important and profound conversation. We really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much. It's such a joy to be speaking with you and to listen to your stories. And I just can't wait for the next time because I'm sure we'll be doing this again. Yes. Oh, well, thank you so much. It was wonderful. I'm honored that y'all asked me. You have a wonderful day, ladies. You too. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Thank you so much, Cookie, for being with us and Like we mentioned in the interview, we can't wait to have you back. We hope that this conversation with Acres of Ancestry and the Return of the Bees project is an ongoing one. And yes, thank you, dear listeners, for being here as well. 
Yes, and we're so happy to support Acres of Ancestry and the Return of the Bees Multimedia Project with proceeds from our Lady Farmer Slow Living Retreat this year. And thank you all so much for being with us. And stay tuned. We'll be back next week. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye.